If you would, please turn to the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 21 through 25, but turning our attention specifically to verse 25, that set of passages. So Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that we pray that you may speak to us this morning through your divinely inspired word. Lord, we pray that through the preaching of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us an increasing hunger and appetite for the pursuit of your kingdom, for the pursuit of Jesus. I pray that you may guide my every word, Lord, and ultimately that it may be not my words, but your word, that will be implanted deep in our hearts through your Holy Spirit who lives in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a series of books based on several theologians and saints of the past, and each author, and there's a different author for each book, and each book is intended to sort of give a short biography on each saint and draw some valuable lessons from their lives. One particular author, Dane Orland, wrote one of these books in this particular series. He wrote Edwards, that is Jonathan Edwards, on the Christian life. And in that particular book, he helps, he gives sort of a helpful analogy with regards to the Christian life. So if you can picture two descending escalators, and on one escalator, it's just people standing on the escalator, letting the escalator takes them down, continually descending. And then on the other escalator are people who are striving to run up that escalator. And if you've ever tried that, you know that it can be pretty tiring and exhausting if you do it for long enough. Jonathan Edwards once said that the way to heaven is ascending. We must be content to travel uphill though it be hard and tiresome and contrary to the natural tendency and bias of our flesh that tends downward to the earth. That picture of the descending escalator with people running up that escalator sort of gives a picture of the Christian life, one that is always striving 
to run up this descending escalator. This really speaks to the Christian's upward trajectory as he or she makes their way in this world in the pursuit of the heavenly kingdom. It also speaks to the gradual progress that the Christian makes in his Christian walk, a progress of sanctification, of more holiness, a progress of Christ-likeness, a progress of growing in joy and rejoicing in Christ. You see, one of the chief concerns of God's people is to make progress in the faith and to enhance their joy in the Lord. And so we had turned then our attention to this particular passage in Philippians chapter 1 as we continue to talk about saving faith and the nature of saving faith. And so what I want to do is just put before you two particular points. And one is the command to make progress and rejoice. And second, the means of progress and joy. I think chapter 1, verse 25 of Philippians teaches us that there is a great concern for your progress and joy and for my progress and joy in the faith. So verse 25 of chapter 1 in Philippians, in its context, the Apostle Paul is describing this difficult tension that he's experiencing, whether he, will desire, whether he desires to depart and be with Christ or to remain on the earth and remain in this life. Hence why he says that for me to live is Christ and to die is, is gain. He's hard-pressed between these two decisions. He cannot make the decision on his own. And for someone to have this sort of this difficult tension, you know, to be depart and be with Christ, or to remain here on the earth to, for, the, for the sake of the church, it's also helpful to consider the fact that Paul wasn't the kind of man who lived an easy life, as many of you know. In fact, when he wrote these words, he was in prison for the preaching of the gospel. So in anyone's mind, it makes sense that he might instead desire to depart and be with Christ. Anything is better, really, than being sitting here in prison. And certainly being with Christ in heaven is far better. And in this book, this particular letter, what you see a lot of is joy, right? the apostle's joy. You read about his joy in the gospel, his joy that even though he's in prison, the gospel continues to be preached his joy in the church. Joy is a predominant theme in the letter of Paul to the Philippians. And you have several times in the letter where he is commanding the church to have joy or to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord is actually one of the most repeated commands in the entire Bible. Now for the Christian, for the believer and follower of Jesus Christ, to rejoice or have joy in the Lord isn't a command that is difficult to follow. Because you love the Lord. You pursue the Lord. Your joy is already grounded in the Lord Jesus. And so it is a command that isn't burdensome for the Christian. In Philippians 3, 
we see Paul's sense of joy in Jesus Christ in the gospel. In Philippians 3, 7, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And if you read what came before that, Paul speaks about everything that he had a teacher of teachers, a Pharisee, and with that comes the prestige, the status, the honor, the recognition of the people, of his being a teacher of teachers. And he left it all behind for the sake of Christ. And not only that, but he considers that stuff rubbish in comparison to having the treasure that is Jesus Christ. He shows us that the greatest treasure of the Christian life is Christ himself. And yes, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we receive salvation, we receive the mercy of God, we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. Those are wonderful blessings that we receive through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the greatest treasure of the Christian life is Christ himself. The ground of Christian joy is found and a personal and relational knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior. And that joy is enhanced in the life of the church. So if we circle back to chapter 1, verse 25, where we ended sort of in the middle of a thought, but if we conclude that thought in verse 26 says, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Somehow the Apostle Paul is convinced that he will get out of prison, and historically he actually does get out of prison, and his intent is to then make another visit to the Philippian church. And he is convinced and is anticipating that it will increase the joy of the church in his coming to them, and his making known his presence to them, and they're receiving him. It's not that they will have joy in him. No, it will actually enhance their joy in the Lord Jesus because they're so concerned with the Apostle Paul. In that same way, right, the church, when they have their joy grounded in the Lord Jesus, they enhance each other's joy through various different means. There's encouragement, admonishment, serving, In some, the joy of the Christian is important to the Apostle Paul. And given the many commands sprinkled throughout the entire Bible, the joy of the Christian also seems to be a great concern to God himself. And we see that concern, for example, in John 15, verses 1 through 11. We won't read all of those passages, but... John 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruits. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. By this, my Father is glorified, verse 8, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Why is it so important to Jesus that his disciples, that his people have joy? And we find an answer to that question when we consider sort of the context in which these words are written. Jesus is saying these words moments before he goes to the cross. To go to the cross on behalf of sinners, to die at the hands of sinners. Jesus is about to depart from this world and his disciples remain on earth. So it seems to be that Jesus is so concerned for the joy of his people because they will remain on the earth in a world that rejoices in the absence of the Savior and hates his people. To put it simply, if we were to find joy, joy is an abiding and sustaining hopefulness that comes from possessing Christ as your greatest treasure. It is an abiding and sustaining hopefulness that comes from possessing Christ as your greatest treasure. Joy is absolutely essential for every believer. It's essential in combating sin. It's essential for enduring. It's essential for maintaining a holy optimism when the world only seems to get darker and darker. And joy is absolutely essential when one is experiencing suffering. So God is greatly concerned for your joy and my joy, and he desires for us to grow in our joy in the Lord Jesus. Not only that, but the scriptures also teach us that there is also a concern for our progress. In different places in the New Testament, we're called to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, to be holy because God is holy. That requires progress. That we show brotherly affection and increase in doing so. Now, why exactly are we required to make progress? I mean, just last week, right, if you were here last week, we talked about the fact that, that God, in Christ Jesus, makes us entirely new. That through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus, as the Son of God who came into the world and died for sinners, that he does not just make you a better version of yourself, but no, he makes you completely new. He causes you to be born again so that you are a new person through faith in Jesus Christ. So why is, this, this, is there this concern that we make progress in our faith? And 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, answers that question for us. It says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling 
and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It says, make every effort to supplement your faith with all of these virtues. Not to supplement your faith with all these virtues, but that you would also increase in these different virtues. Why? Because they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. And they prevent you from falling away. The Bible uses many verbs to describe the Christian life. Labor, run, flee, stand firm, kill sin, be strong, train yourselves. These active verbs and many others in the New Testament intend to teach us that the Christian life is one of gradual progress. And that there is no room for complacency. There's a story of a couple, Robert and Glenda Lennon, who decide to take out their yacht and go fishing. This is in the, in the coast of Florida. They go out four miles off the coast. They decide to go fishing. Glenda decides to go out for a swim. She dives in, and after some moments out there swimming in the water, she realizes that she's, been, that she's gone further and further away from the boat because the current has actually turned and is actually taking her further away. She calls out to her husband. Her husband, without hesitation, dives into the water after his wife. He swims out to her, but the current is taking them both away from the boat. And he realizes, and he's an expert swimmer, he realizes that she can't get there on her own, and he doesn't have the strength to fight against the current and also carry her back to the boat. So they decide instead that she's going to stay there. Keep yourself afloat. Let the current take you. I'm going to swim back against the current, back to the boat. He swims back, but it takes him six hours to get back to the boat. Gets back on the boat, tries to search for his wife, and he can't find her. Other boats in the area also join and try to find his wife. They can't find her. It's already dark at this point. They have no choice but to go back to shore. The next morning, a party goes out to search for her, and they find her 20 miles off the coast, still alive. There's a picture there of the Christian life. That the Christian life is one of swimming against the current. And the danger is that if we allow ourselves to just float above the waters and let the current take us wherever it wills, the Bible's warning is that we may end up at the shores of destruction. And so we must swim, make progress. Swim hard. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus has this judgment against his current generation because they don't show the right or appropriate response given to the situation that is at hand, and that is that the king has arrived and there's the preaching of the gospel. People are not rejoicing and dancing where they should be. People are not mourning when they should be mourning. And Jesus says in Matthew eleven twelve, 12, 
from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Jesus is giving us there a picture of the Christian life. That those who pursue the kingdom, they pursue it with vigor, with tenacity, that they never stop striving to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because these individuals who, who, who strive, it's like the picture of, a, of, a, uh, of soldiers trying to take over a city. They are, they are forcing their way and they're striving to get into the kingdom. Why? Because they have realized that this kingdom is precious. That this is the appropriate response. What has John the Baptist been doing since the beginning of his ministry until the point that he was crucified uh, or beheaded? He preached the kingdom. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the response is that people were receiving the gospel and were seeking to enter the kingdom of heaven. They determined that what lies before them is much greater than what they're leaving behind. And so they want so badly to enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that there would be such a response today to the preaching of the gospel that people would pursue it with all of their might. Yes, let me into the kingdom. Let me behold the king. That's what we're called to do, to pursue the kingdom of heaven with all of our might. The kingdom of heaven was never intended to indulge the ease of the lazy and slothful but it is intended to be a place of comfort and rest for those who run hard and swim hard after it. It's for this reason that Jonathan Edwards once said, and if you've, you've probably heard me say this many times before, but the pursuit of the kingdom is the chief business of the Christian. You have a lot of responsibilities on your shoulders. You have a lot of things to take care of, and you have to take care of those responsibilities. But nothing takes the place of pursuing the kingdom of heaven. That is your chief and primary concern above all other things. So we must make progress, increase, and these virtues that we read about in 2 Peter. Because doing so keeps us from being ineffective or unfruitful, and they keep us also from falling and ending up at the shores of destruction. So there's a great concern here for our progress, and hopefully you see the reason why. Now in John 15, verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus is pointing to himself that he is that great friend who laid down his life for his friends. No other example of love surpasses that particular example. 
there is a great motivation for why you and I must work diligently to pursue the kingdom of heaven because Jesus loves us and Jesus died for us. He laid down his life for us. So how could we not then pursue his kingdom and pursue Jesus? Someone who has given his life so that we might be saved. So then given this concern for your joy and progress and given the commands in the scriptures to make progress and to increase joy in the Lord and have your joy in the Lord, then what, what then are our means? What are the means of progress in joy? So transitioning now to the second and final point. What are the means that God has given to his church for their progress and joy in the faith? It's a particular office, and that is the office of the elder pastor. In Ephesians chapter 4, we have this grand vision of the church. It tells us there that Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, he then dispensed gifts to the church. It says that he gave to the church the apostles, an office that don't think is still present today. He gave the office of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So God's purpose in giving to the church the office of the elder pastors to help the church to make progress and help them enhance their joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of those ways is as functioning as officers of unity, of helping to maintain the unity of the church that is theirs to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to help the church make progress and growing and maturing and hopefully, well, certainly one day leading to reaching the stature of the fullness of Christ when Christ returns. And the purpose is so that we may not be carried away by the currents of the world, the currents of ideologies that are contrary to the gospel, the false doctrine that is preached even behind many pulpits today. This matters a great deal because essentially doctrine is a matter of life and death. The teaching of the church is a matter of life and death. And if you protect the doctrine and the teaching of the church, you also help to protect the life of the church. And here is one particular reason why I myself must be diligent to make progress specifically in the preaching of the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then later, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
Right? We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because people need to hear the gospel in order to be saved from the judgment and the wrath of God. We want to preach the gospel to those who do not know Jesus in a personal way because we want them to know Jesus in a personal way and to have mercy and forgiveness and receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. But here in this passage in 2 Corinthians, it also teaches us that the word of the cross, that the preaching of the cross, of the gospel, is also for the believer. That it is for those who are being saved. Which tells me that something supernatural happens every single Sunday morning. When a pastor gets up and opens up the scriptures and sets a particular passage before the people and explains that passage and helps people see the realities of that passage through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ and helps people to live according to those realities through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God means to use that as a way of effecting salvation in those who are saved. Not through the facilitating of a discussion on Sunday mornings. Not through a lecture on Sunday mornings. Not through our separating into different groups and discussing the particular passage. Those are helpful in different contexts. But this passage here tells me that God blesses in a unique way the preaching of the word to effect and bring salvation in the hearts of those who are His. Including my own. First Corinthians 1, verse 24, it says, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. One of the primary responsibilities of an elder pastor is to work with the saints for their joy. To help raise their level of affections for the Lord Jesus Christ. To help set their eyes on Jesus Christ. To behold the beauty of Jesus Christ through the divinely inspired word. John 15, verse 9 It says, as the Father has loved me, we read this passage earlier, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, Jesus says. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. One of the responsibilities of a preacher of the word, of the elder pastor, is to encourage and exhort the church to follow the commands of Scripture. And by the way, that is also how we help one another increase in our joy in the Lord, by encouraging one another to obey the commandments of the Scriptures. What Jesus is telling us in these passages is that joy and obedience go hand in hand. If you're lacking in joy these days, then I would ask, well, how obedient have you been to the Lord? Joy is not without obedience. That is, joy in the Lord is not without obedience. 
Those who are joy-filled obey the Lord and walk in His commands. Those who seek to be more joy-filled will walk in the commandments of the Lord. Obedience without joy is just moralism. Commandments apart from joy in the Lord through faith in the Lord Jesus is just pharisaical faith. It's just rules and standards of behavior when they are apart from faith and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this just ends up just being a religion. I know, right, as Christians, right, we're identified as, the, as, a, as a Christian religion. But for Christians, but for followers of Jesus Christ, for those who strive to pursue the kingdom of heaven with all of their might because of the great treasure that is Christ himself, no, this isn't just a religion. This is a way of life. It is the reason why early, the early Christians in the book of Acts were identified or known as the way. Because following Jesus was the way of life. There is no other kind of life for the Christian. There's only one way of life, and that is the one that is always following Jesus Christ. John 16, 24. Another means of making progress in joy. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, Jesus asks. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. One of my responsibilities is to encourage you to keep praying. Again, Jesus seems to be teaching us that joy and prayer seem to go hand in hand. So if you're lacking in joy, one of the first questions I would ask myself is, well, how much am I praying? They go hand in hand. It is why we pray on Sunday mornings. It is why we encourage people to be part of a community group during the week, to get together with other believers, to pray together. It's why I want to continue to encourage you to pray because I want you to be the most joy-filled people in the planet. And you can't have that unless you are praying regularly. And often... So if we wish to make progress and increase our joy in the Lord, we must be obedient. We must walk in the commandments of the Lord because that is how we abide in the love of Jesus. Prayer is also another means of growing in joy and making progress. But let me give you one final special means of grace that God has given to his church to help them make progress and increase their joy in the Lord. And that is the word of God. It is his word. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Meaning that no matter what person endeavors to do, he always bears fruit. And there's a contrast there 
right? You have the way of the wicked, the totality of the wicked. They walk, sit, stand with sinners. That's the, the totality of the life that is per, of the person who is apart from Christ. But on the other hand, the person who is blessed by God is the person who delights in the word of God and meditates on his word day and night. One of the most joy-filled, one of the most happy saints that I know of is George Mueller. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with him. George Mueller was the man who established many orphanages, never took out debts, never asked people for money. Everything was provided by the Lord. Everything was provided through prayer and prayer alone. And George Mueller writes this. It's a little lengthy, but I hope you can bear with me. He writes, Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to meditation on it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus, by the means of the Word of God, while meditating on it, my heart might be brought into experimental communion with the Lord. He writes elsewhere, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might, in other ways, seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world. And yet... Not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this might not be attended to in a right spirit. Right, so you might seek to relieve the distressed, to encourage others, to exhort others, to serve others, to glorify the Lord, but those things might not be attended to in the right manner if your soul isn't happy and satisfied in the Lord Jesus, first and foremost. And I may have spent like three hours every single day in reading and meditating and praying. Now, there's no command in Scripture that you ought to do the same. Even in Psalm 1, it doesn't explicitly command you and I to meditate on the Word of God. But would you not consider the principle of Psalm 1 worthy of imitating? Would you not learn from this dear saint and many others like him and their practice of communion with God? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is a man or woman of God who delights in the word of God and meditates on the word of God day and night. Right? Don't you desire to be blessed? As human beings, we are pretty good at never missing a meal. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. 
about how often we neglect the diet of communion with God. How often do we neglect this necessary meal to nourish our souls? I love the language of John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus speaking to a vast crowd. He's teaching them, he's telling them that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For everyone who feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Right, sounds disgusting. But Jesus often uses this offensive language to make a point. Jesus is talking about faith. That faith is like consuming Jesus Christ. That if you are to believe in Jesus, it is like it is consuming Jesus so that he then consumes you because Jesus desires to not only have a part of you, he doesn't desire just 10% of you or 50% of you or 90% of you, but believing in Jesus requires that he have everything. We must be consuming Christ if we wish Christ to consume us, to be possessed by Christ. And this requires a regular diet of the Word of God. Having this daily communion with Christ, right? why would you not want to be possessed by Christ? And do you not wish to imitate Christ? Do you not desire to be conformed to His image? Do you not desire to lay aside every sin in your life that clings so closely? Do you not love him? And if you do, then commune with the Lord Jesus. Seek him through his word. Pursue him. Now, pursuit of the Lord through these means, through obedience, through prayer, through the word of God, doesn't always immediately result in increasing progress and joy in the Lord Jesus, but that is not a reason to quit them. For if you do, I guarantee you that you will be in a much worse state, perhaps even finding yourself close to the shores of destruction. Sometimes communion with Christ is like taking a multivitamin each day. Right? We might take them every day, if you don't, maybe you probably should consider doing that. But you might take them every day, and you don't necessarily feel different taking them, do you? And if you notice anything, it might be maybe weeks out, maybe months out. Who knows if you ever feel the effects, if you feel any different. But you take them every day because you trust that they're working. Communion with Christ sometimes is like that. It doesn't always show its fruit immediately. But you trust that it's working. You trust that the Lord is using it as a means of grace in your life, a means by which He is nourishing your soul and strengthening your soul and sustaining your soul. And by the way, how do you keep track of your progress? How do you know you're continuing to grow and progress in your Christian walk, growing in holiness, growing in your joy in the Lord? Through the Word. Because the Word functions as a mirror that gives us our reflection. The Word encourages us. The Word strengthens us. 
The Word can affirm us. The Word can also reprove and correct us and convict us and rebuke us. So we go to the Word and we allow the Word to do its work. We pray that by the Spirit of God that the Lord would do His work in our hearts and our lives through the Word, helping us to see where we haven't been making progress, what particular fruits am I not producing? And through the Spirit, aim and pursue to grow and increase in our joy in the Lord. So all in all, what do we learn about the nature of saving faith according to this particular topic and this particular passage in the book of Philippians? What we learn is that saving faith is always in the pursuit of God. Saving faith is always striving to make progress. And saving faith is always pursuing greater joy in the Lord Jesus. So may God see fit to bless our efforts. And may He use His means in the pursuit of God for our joy and for our progress until the day that we can take a much-needed rest when He returns. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Your Word teaches us that we are saved by faith and faith alone. But it is not a faith that is stagnant. It is not a faith that remains still, much less is it a faith that is lazy and slothful. But it is a a faith that is always pursuing Christ, a faith that is always growing, a faith that strives to grow to the stature of the fullness of Christ. Lord, help us to walk in your commands. Lord, help us to pray. And Lord, help us to go to your word so that we may make progress, so that we may increase in our joy in the Lord Jesus. Help us to not neglect these gracious means. Lord, and you have given us so many others, Lord. Like service, the fellowship of the saints. These are all means of progress and joy in the faith. Help us to not neglect these things. But more than anything else, Lord, if we should pursue you and bear fruit and enhance our joy in the Lord, help us by your Spirit to go to your word, to abide in your word, to learn, to study, to meditate on your word so that we may be blessed, so that we may prosper in all that we do. We trust you, Father, for all of these things. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.